This is an ABC podcast. We just presume as soon as a woman gets pregnant, she's just going to suddenly become this earth mother with paleo wraps and the perfect cotton wraps over the pram. But that's not <laughs> the case, and it wasn't the case for me. Yeah. My transition to motherhood was very, very difficult. I'd gone from being this crazy backpacker girl who had a party at her fingertips, you know, with glitter boobs at Glastonbury, <laughs> to then being in an apartment on my own with a crying child. Mm. And of course, the only escape I knew throughout my whole life for anything was to have a drink. This is Victoria Vanstone. And as you can probably tell, she is very candid about her life, especially when it comes to her drinking and what it did to her mental health. And of course, I used to just deal with hangovers with a bacon sandwich and a cup of tea or a coffee and, and a laugh round a table with my mates with a roast dinner. But something changed. Um, when I woke up that first hangover with a crying baby in the room beyond, that was a huge wake-up call for me. Not enough to stop me drinking, I may add, but something infiltrated my hangovers that day. And that was the anxiety and the guilt and the shame, all the things that go along with you not being able to parent properly. Alcohol and anxiety, a vicious pairing, but as it turns out, a pretty common one. What we do know is that if you have an anxiety disorder, then you're two to three times more likely to have an alcohol use disorder. So not everyone who has anxiety is going to experience problems with alcohol, but we do find that for some people, they can tend to what we call self-medicate. So alcohol can be a way that people cope with their anxiety symptoms. But the opposite can also be true, where drinking can lead to anxiety, like it did for Victoria. In the end, it made me feel like I was going completely mad because it was just this never-ending cycle of drink, panic, drink, panic, drink, panic, which I just couldn't step out of. It felt impossible. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Over summer, we're sharing some of our favourite episodes of the year. And since it's a new year and you might be thinking about resolutions, perhaps taking a break from alcohol, we thought it might help to replay our episode on alcohol use disorder and anxiety. Why these two conditions often go hand in hand, how they can egg each other on and spiral out of control. I was stealing bottles of wine out of, you know, the drinks cabinet, sneaking around between the mahogany chairs of my parents' <laughs> lounge and pouring horrible liquids down my throats, probably from the age of about 12 or 13. Victoria's relationship with alcohol began early, but drinking for her was less an act of rebellion and more a bid for belonging. The key to that drinks cabinet was like a, a key to fun and a key to being popular. And also for me, it was about being accepted into my family because they were so fun. They were always the life and soul. And I wanted to be part of that sort of cheerful pandemonium that my parents had created. Mm. There was always very, very happy drinking, I would call it. The sort of drinking that, you know, you get a slap on the back for as you buy another round and it's sort of cheered mm. on from the sidelines. So there was never a negative style of drinking that I saw growing up. So therefore, as I got older, my aim was always to be the person who had a party at hand. You know, I could hmm. sit on a pile of mud, a string of fairy lights and invite someone along and, you know, the good times could roll. 
But as I grew older, things started to happen. Red flags that were flying in front of me very, very strongly that I chose to ignore because I didn't know another way of being. Mm. For example, I blew one of my fingers off with a firework on the millennium night. I was very promiscuous. I put myself at risk. I mean, I abandoned my body in those situations and my mind because I would be in a blackout. Mm. I would go home with some guy that I hadn't met before. And I was really putting myself at risk a lot. So there was all of these things happening to me, but it was never enough for me to question it or to stop. Having a baby at age 34 changed everything for Victoria, except the drinking. It was six weeks after my baby was born and it had all built up and I was feeling really stressed and I didn't feel like the me I knew anymore. Mm. That transition was so huge for me. I wasn't this earth mother, I was this party girl. So what was happening to me? And I didn't have any help or support, but you know, my husband was at work every day. So I wanted to recreate that self by going out and being the person I was. And of course that involved me getting drunk. And my drinking changed then. I wouldn't say it escalated, but it changed. It became more of a numb out and a more of a way of me dealing with the mundanity of becoming a mum. And over the weeks, you know, I'd be a great mum during the week and I would be that perfect earth mother, but that would change and the need to go and numb it all out would build up and then I'd go on a big night out and get wasted. Once those big nights out ended, the waves of anxiety would begin. I think when I first woke up on those horrible Sunday mornings, it was the fear of what I had done or the fear that what I had said. I mean, that's the crazy thing about hangover anxiety is that you don't know. So therefore you go to worst case scenario mentally and that's where the anxiety spiral begins. Then her mind would move on to the guilt of missing out on the day with her family. I was incapable of moving my head, let alone taking my kid to the park. Mm. And the shame of listening to my husband getting the baby ready and, you know, the door latch clicking closed as they went on about the day and I laid in bed, you know, and the only movement I did was to probably run to the bathroom to regurgitate some dodgy kebab I'd had the night before. It just wasn't a good look and Mm. that affected me and that brought on the anxiety for me. How much longer did this drinking and the anxiety that would result from it continue before you realised you really sort of needed to get help. There were four years where I tried to combine these two very, very different lives. And that's not an easy place to be. I called it my Pinot Gris purgatory. Mm -hmm. It was a place where I got stuck because I didn't feel like I was worthy of help and I didn't feel like I should stop forever just because I had a few panic attacks here and there. So throughout that period, I was trying to learn to drink well. I was trying to have waters before wines or I was trying to moderate, which of course, you know, I'd sit with one glass of wine with my pinky finger sticking out, feeling all proper, and I'd end up passed out on a dance floor somewhere. So moderation was never a possibility for me. Mm. So it, yeah, it took me four years. I actually got pregnant again by some miracle and I had another nine months of sobriety a forced sobriety where it was like a little window into another world and I found it really fascinating I could still go out and have conversations and actually I had really nice connections with people really authentic moments with my friends when I was pregnant because I was actually just being myself for the first time I realized gosh this is actually all right when my second baby was born the same build-up of of emotion came along with it and I went out again six weeks after she was born the stress of it all got too much 
and I went out and got hugely drunk. And the next day I woke up again with the same level of anxiety as I had been doing that last four years. Nothing was changing for me. Hmm. I was getting more and more mentally unwell and the alcohol was actually causing some sort of chemical imbalance in my brain. And it had gone on for so long and the anxiety was getting worse and worse and worse that I think it was just one hangover too far. And I realized at that point that I had to do something about it. Victoria's experience is what's sometimes jokingly referred to as anxiety. That's anxiety that arises as a miserable accompaniment to a hangover. It's one way that alcohol and anxiety work together, but more common is when anxiety comes first. That's according to Lexine Stepinski. She's an associate professor with the Matilda Center for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use at the University of Sydney. It is really a case of chicken and egg here. We know that anxiety can lead to alcohol use. Adolescents who have anxiety are more likely to drink a little bit earlier on than kids that don't have anxiety. And we do know that people report that they drink alcohol to cope with anxiety as well. So that's suggesting anxiety coming first. What we do know is that if you have an anxiety disorder, then you're two to three times more likely to have an alcohol use disorder. And what we see is a vicious cycle between alcohol and anxiety use. So the more that you start to use, the more that you may get other sort of problems going on in your life as well. And then that can in turn lead to more stress mm. and more anxiety. So anxiety and alcohol use tend to feed each other in a vicious cycle. Wow. And that's when they cross over into disorder territory, right? As opposed to just feeling worried and having a glass of wine every now and then. Yeah, look, that's exactly right. Not everyone that has a glass of wine every now and then, you know, has a problem with alcohol. But I guess as you're starting maybe to self-medicate or as those levels creep up, yeah, you're starting to get those broader problems in work, in family relationships. Mm. And that's when we're talking about potentially needing to get some support and some help to deal with that. That's where Victoria had landed. In the end, it made me feel like I was going completely mad because it was just this never-ending cycle of drink, panic, drink, panic, drink, panic, which I just couldn't step out of. It felt impossible. And that's what in the end really built up because my children were growing and I was starting to miss out on time with them. And that really, really broke my heart. And that's what led me to seek sobriety. And so when you did get help, what what did you get? What kind of treatment did you seek out? And did it address both the anxiety and the drinking at the same time? Or was that separated? I just went online and I found a local therapist who the title of the website was Breaking Free. And it was about breaking free from anxiety and addiction. And I was like, well, even though at the time I probably didn't, I wouldn't have characterized myself as having an addiction, but I was definitely mentally addicted, I realize now. And that seemed like the perfect place to go. And she helped me dramatically. While Victoria was able to get help for both her alcohol use and anxiety at the same time, Lexine says that doesn't always happen, even though this is crucial for effectively helping people with these interlinked disorders. It can be hard for people who seek treatment. So, for example, who decide, I'm not happy with my drinking, I want to make a change. It can be hard for them to change when they have the anxiety as well. So when they start to cut down their drinking, they find that 
they don't know what to do with their anxiety, their anxiety that they've been managing with the alcohol use. So the research that we've been doing um, has been some of the first to kind of provide the evidence base for treating the two problems together. Now, that isn't to say that people aren't out there doing it, but we've sort of provided the first programs with strong evidence to say, yes, it actually is really helpful to address these problems together. One of these studies involved 117 participants where half were given cognitive behavioural therapy that focused on both the person's alcohol use disorder and their anxiety, while the control group were given therapy that just focused on their alcohol use. And what we found was that if you treated both problems together, if you gave them skills for both the anxiety and the alcohol use, what we saw was a greater improvement in people's quality of life, a greater Mm. improvement in their anxiety symptoms, and there were other benefits like greater improvement in their depression as well. That trial was published just last year. And that was all great and good news, but Lexine wondered what would happen if these adults had gotten treatment years earlier. On average, they take 10 years to seek treatment for an alcohol use disorder. So they're really waiting until it's really, really entrenched before they get treatment. And there's probably lots of reasons for that. You know, the kind of stigma around accessing treatment is part of that. So what we thought was, what if we take a step back, get in when people are young adults, when they're just starting to maybe form some patterns that are a bit unhealthy, get them to recognise the potential link between anxiety and alcohol use. Um, You know, how do you do that? How do you, if you want to go out and have fun and potentially have a few drinks, but you just want to make sure that it's not at hazardous levels, how do you do that? Um, So I looked into the research and also did some focus groups with young people and the feedback that came out of that was that young people really did like web-based treatments and there are a few reasons for that. Convenience was one of them, like, you know, you don't have to travel and go and see your psychologist, you can access it at any time. But the other thing was people reported they felt like there was less risk of stigma or being judged by others accessing resources that way. So Lexine and her colleagues developed an online intervention called Inroads, aimed at 17 to 24-year-olds. It's a program that's again based on cognitive behavioural therapy. What that means is that we're really looking at practical, sort of straightforward things that you can do in the here and now to help manage your anxiety and take control of your drinking. And cognitive is basically about your thoughts. So it's looking at the kind of perspectives that you might take on the world, on yourself and on others, and how you can work on those, how you can use those, I guess, to your advantage. Mostly the content is delivered via some modules. So there's five online learning modules and each one has a sort of different topic. So you would work through the online modules. You would also fill out some quizzes to make sure that you've understood the content. So I guess it's it's like self-learning in that way. And so how many people actually finish the modules? Like how effective is this? Because I instinctively I'm a bit sceptical about online interventions like this because... I feel like if you're just clicking through a bunch of modules, there's a very, it's very easy to fall out and and not complete it. Yeah, look, I understand your concerns. And that's one of the reasons why we also embedded a psychologist support component as well. So they had a first session with the psychologist and this was just over the phone. So I think the psychologist support did help Mm -hmm. in terms of getting people. Now, it, it wasn't that everyone completed all of the modules. What we found though was that most people completed at least three modules. And so within, you know, even just finishing three, how effective was this intervention? What did you find? Yeah, so 
Within the trial, what we found was compared to the control group, people that did the inroads program had reductions in hazardous alcohol use. So this is alcohol use that's you know getting them into trouble. And they also had significant reductions in their anxiety. And so we followed people up at two months and at six months. And what we saw was that people's anxiety improved immediately, but some of the benefits for alcohol use were delayed and they didn't show up until the six-month mark. And so what that showed me was that by helping people with their anxiety, we might have been having a kind of longer term effect on alcohol use, which was exactly kind of what we would think, because we think if people are drinking for self-medication reasons, then it's their anxiety that's really prompting them to drink and is making it hard for them to make changes. In terms of how big the benefits were compared to the control group, can you describe that? Like there were reductions, but how much of a difference did inroads make? I mean, this is a group of young adults. So it's very common in Australian young adults to be exceeding Australian alcohol Mm -hmm. guidelines because I guess it's a time when when people are quite commonly binge drinking. So what we saw in the control group, you've got 72% of young people are exceeding the alcohol guidelines, whereas less than 50%, so 48% of people in the inroads group were exceeding alcohol guidelines, Mm. so six months after the program. And do we know if the benefits last longer term than that beyond six months or are we not really sure? No. So I guess in terms of future research directions for us, that is something that we're looking into. We want to know, yeah, exactly Mm. your question. Does it continue to help people? Because what it might be and what we would really hope is that we're actually putting people on a different trajectory because problems do tend to snowball. So if we can put something in place that makes a a difference at a young age, it might be that they're then just on a different pathway and they're able to kind of, you know, navigate things without getting into trouble with alcohol down the track. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. If prevention is better than treatment, then another Matilda Centre program goes further, targeting even younger kids, around the ages of 13 and 14. It's called Preventure, and it's got a unique approach. It's delivered in person in schools, but it focuses on tailoring information to kids' personality traits. Professor Nicola Newton, also from the Matilda Centre, says that's because certain traits are predictive of substance misuse. Those include anxiety, but a whole lot more too. The reason that we go in early around that 13 to 14 year old year group is because we need to get in before kids are exposed to substances and alcohol. So we screen kids for their levels on these different personality traits. There's four that we're interested in. The first is negative thinking, and those are kids who demonstrate low mood, have negative beliefs about themselves in the future. Then we have anxiety-sensitive kids. So anxiety sensitivity is different to anxiety in that it's a fear of those anxiety-related physical sensations, rapid heartbeat or those sweaty palms. We then have impulsive kids who are more prone to rapid decision-making and action and have that poor self-control so they can't really stop and think before they do things. And finally, sensation seekers. So they're also your thrill-seeking kids or ones that have an elevated need for fun and excitement and are often involved in more risk-taking behaviours. And do all kids fall into one of these four groups? They don't, but everyone does have a bit of each of these traits within them. So 
we see about 40% of a whole year group will fall into one of these four. They're reporting high levels of these traits, high enough for us to start to go, okay, well, there's an opportunity for us to intervene. But Professor Newton says how these kids interact with alcohol can differ pretty significantly, depending which group they fall into. So our anxiety-sensitive kids, we know that they tend to have a later onset of drinking during the adolescence, so it's almost protective over that early adolescent period. But when they do start drinking, they have increased levels of drinking. And this is because we know that they're more responsive to those anxiety-reducing effects from alcohol. In terms of our sensation seekers, you know, they want to have fun, so we see greater binge drinking, more injuries related to alcohol. And so what we do is we pull these kids out and we form these groups Then we run two 90-minute sessions with them and these are focused on goal-setting, cognitive behavioural therapy techniques and also trying to get them to challenge personality-specific distortions that they have. And what does that mean, personality distortions and what you then do with these groups? Can you explain that a bit more? What does that look like? Yeah, okay. So we know that our anxiety kids, for example, they tend to overestimate the likelihood that something bad is going to happen. So with these kids, we try and really challenge that belief and almost exposure therapy to an extent Mm. where we try and say, okay, well, what is the worst that can happen and how often or how likely is it that that would happen? And then we go on and by challenging those core beliefs they have and trying to kind of retrain their knowledge and their understanding of those personality traits. How do you do this just within the space of two sessions? We have really, really fabulous facilitators. (laughs) So the most recent trial we've done in Australia includes facilitators who have clinical psychology degrees. So they're very well equipped with these skills themselves. And so what have you found about the efficacy of this intervention? Does it prevent problem drinking long-term? Yeah, so we've just completed a seven-year follow-up of a study that we started in 2012. And what we found is that the students who got these interventions when they were in year eight and year nine, they had significant reductions in their binge drinking. They had reductions in the amount of harms that they experienced as a response to drinking alcohol. And we also found that they were significantly less likely to develop an alcohol-related disorder by the time they were 20 years of age. Mm. So we're seeing up to 80% reductions in the likelihood of developing these problems, which is really substantial. Yeah, were you surprised by the the effect it did have following up after seven years? Yeah, definitely. We really were. We were hoping that we'd have an effect, but what we didn't realise was that these could have a sustained effect into emerging adulthood (sighs) because it's extremely hard to, one, conduct these long-term trials, but also it's really hard to get funding to do so. Mm. Only about 5% of all prevention programs worldwide have ever followed kids up after two years. So it's one of the first of its kind. I want to circle back to Victoria now, the self-described party girl and big drinker we heard from at the start of the show. She eventually got help for her drinking and has now been sober for four years. But she does wonder if messaging on the harms of alcohol at a younger age could have helped prevent her problem drinking. 
As a teen or young adult, did you ever have any education around responsible drinking or the interplay between anxiety and drinking? Absolutely not. No, mm. I had no awareness of that whatsoever. All I thought was that drinking was going to make me fun. It was going to make me accepted. If I could make everybody laugh, therefore I was popular and that was who I was. So there was never a moment until I started to experience anxiety that I related the two. Mm. But of course now I see it's entrenched in my life that anxiety and alcohol go together. And if you had received some messaging or some, you know, courses in school or anything like that, do you think it would have helped at the time or were you? do you feel like you were on a very set train? I think it would have helped. I think education, you know, I was good at school. I would have listened to that because it was something I was interested in. Mm. Of course, I knew the repercussions of drinking, but at that young age, I just thought that was part of it. And that was funny. If I vomited, it was kind of like a badge of honor to mm. my mates the next day to go, yeah, look, I'm a proper drinker now. But I think also it that is the problem right there. It is so ingrained in our society and so normalized that why would you question it? Because if everyone you know and love is doing it, you can't have the opportunity to see and, and get a view out of that little window mm. that I saw later on in life. Why do you think the anxiety never cropped up before having children? Why do you think it was only after children that you started experiencing hangover anxiety? I had never had any consequences to my drinking before. I would never had to get up out of bed and parent. I never, ha I could always just lie in bed and wait for the, you know, the pub to be open. Hmm. So I never, ever had a consequence. And children, you know, I don't want to call them a consequence, but <laughs> they were a consequence to my drinking. Hmm. I had to function the next day and I had to think of somebody else before myself for the first time ever. And that's what made me quit. Do you remember your last drink? You know, the last drink you would have had before embarking on sobriety. Do you remember that? Yep, absolutely. It was the six weeks after my second child was born and I was at the pub and I was chatting to a guy and I said to him, I had a six-week-old baby at home. And he said to me, what are you doing here then? And I put my drink down and I walked out and that was the last drink I ever had. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Him asking that question sort of really just brought into stark relief for you. Yeah, I just thought, gosh, what am I doing here? Talking to this guy, I've never met before and I should be at home looking mm. after my child. And that was it. Yeah, that was it. And I think for some people, there are moments like that where you just go, oh my God, what am I doing? This is crazy. This is stupid. I mean, and we're living for those short-lived moments. For me, drinking was that one or two glasses of wine in. I'd be euphoric for that five minutes and then it was a downward spiral into oblivion. Wow. So, and I think a lot of people are living for that. We're living for that moment. But now I get that same thrill and that same euphoria from having an alcohol-free beer or having a mocktail and watching a sunset, you can still get those highs. And I think that's why a lot of people don't try sobriety because they're scared of not feeling that same level of relaxation or mm. happiness that they get with alcohol. Mm. But actually that is possible. And I think, you know, it will take a year for you to get to that point in sobriety, but you can feel joy in those moments. And I look forward to a nice cup of chai before bed, <laughs> like I used to a glass of wine. As your kids, I think your kids are quite young now still, but as they grow older, what are your hopes for how they interact with alcohol? Well, you might have to call me in 10 years where we'll find out if I'm bailing them out of, a, of the local jail or not. But <laughs> I hope, my hope is that my change will ripple through my family for generations to come. Mm. I mean, I don't think you can underestimate the, you know, the cycle breaker here. You've 
you know, you've got to lead by example. And I'm hoping, I keep saying the word hope on this one, but I'm hoping that it means at least they have a choice. Yeah. They choose to drink or not drink. I'm never going to tell them what to do, but I'm hoping my influence and my leading by example will get them to make the right choices. Yeah. And it would be wonderful if they didn't drink. That's Victoria Vanstone, co-host of the Sober Awkward podcast and founder of the social platform Cuppa. Just for sober and sober curious people, it's a free platform. So I'm trying to normalize meeting for a cup of tea and on there you can meet sober people all around the world and arrange meetups and walks and whatever you want to do. So that's really exciting. And before Victoria, you heard from Associate Professor Lexine Stepinski and Professor Nicola Newton, both from the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use at the University of Sydney. That's it for All in the Mind this week. Thanks to producer James Bullen and sound engineer Isabella Tropiano. I'm Sana Kadar. Thank you for listening. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.